Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grid, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I have a great conversation with my guest, Sanjay Berman. He's the CEO and co-founder of IndieView.com, an interactive new platform for indie filmmakers and fans of indie films. Sanjay talks about film school, how he made his mark on Hollywood, and why he felt the need to create IndieView. Let's get into it. And here we are with Sanjay Berman. How are you, Sanjay? Excellent. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks for being on the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to, to talk to you because uh, you've created something specifically for indie filmmakers and those that love indie films. Yes, yes. I felt that there was a, a niche market that, that uh, the Netflix and, and all the others were missing out on, luckily. And uh, I felt that there was a passionate um, audience that really loves film and and aren't interested so much in remakes or prequels or sequels. And I mean, those are are appreciated as well, but they wanted to see really cutting edge filmmakers with terrific stories uh, that, that they could really delve into. Yeah. And what you've created is a platform called IndieView. Could you tell us about that? IndieView is I-N-D-I-E-V-U-E, and what we came up with was a way to try and make it, A, transparent for filmmakers, members, and ourselves, and B, try to bring some money back into these small films that don't have a market, don't have a place to play, and really these filmmakers are doing it out of passion and hopes to getting something more happening in their lives and they're maxing out their credit cards or taking loans and really aren't seeing any any uh, you know revenue coming back for these films so oh, yeah. uh, if you're not recouping it it goes basically into you know YouTube or 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 your closet Back in the day before YouTube, it would have gone in your closet. Today, you just put it up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the paying model of YouTube, there's really not a lot of money there, you know, for for what they could be paying versus what they are paying. The Netflix is looking for the Hollywood films because they're looking for mass audiences. Mm -hmm. So what we came up with was a platform that would pay you on the first click and every click after that. But also give you a platform as a film buff or film enthusiast to interact with filmmakers, to have your say, to um, be able to participate in conversations. So we made it sort of Netflix for indie films, but with, with a Spotify kind of twist to it so that you can be part of the world instead of just watching from a very cold angle. Oh, very cool. So there's, there's a social aspect to it. That's correct. That's great. Well, you remember you remember the days of, of DVDs. You would have the director's comments. Oh, the best and, part and of the DVD. The, well, well, you see, you and I think that, and yeah. a, a lot of other people thought that. But when DVDs went out, you didn't have that anymore because Netflix doesn't have that. So what I wanted to do was to bring the DVD comments back 
but also have you interact with the filmmaker so that the conversations went in the direction that interested you. So essentially the live and interactive has the movie playing, but the director at the bottom of the screen and in their own screen and you typing out like a Twitter style messages to the director. So they're reading it in real time and answering you. Oh, wow. That's some, that's some next level stuff. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, it, it was it was just a concept from film school where I was looking at these these uh, colleagues of mine, these students that were were putting five thousand dollars on their credit card to make this little you know Bolex movie. This is a little little sixteen millimeter movie mm-hmm. for class, but they, some of them were really good. Some mm-hmm. of them I still remember after all these years. But where do you go with it? So they it would go in their closet. And I thought, well, how do you, how's that good for anybody? How's that good for film buffs? How's that good for the filmmakers? So let's create a platform that you can't find. And the one thing, you know, everyone first of all said to me was, well, there's YouTube, though. And they're kind of looking at me like I've lost my mind, like you didn't know about YouTube. Right. But when you put in the amount of effort, the amount of money, getting the crew together, shooting for God knows how long to get this little movie done, finding editing time, you know, in places that allow you to come in at two in the morning to edit uh, off hours type of thing. And it's finally completed to put it up on YouTube and have it being played next to a cat playing a piano or a guy falling off a skateboard is a little demeaning to me, Mm -hmm. maybe not to everybody, but to me, it's like, uh, uh, a home video of a cat playing a piano got 14 million hits, and my movie that took me two years to get made has got you know 3,000 hits. Yeah, I, so I feel that it, it's it's a drop in a, in an ocean of water. That's correct. And so what what I wanted to do was to create a platform that you could bring your movie to, and it would be appreciated by other people who knew how much work who went into it, mm-hmm. who understood the painstaking process, and who were there to watch movies, not to go through home videos or anything like that. Everyone on IndieView is there for one purpose, to enjoy and interact about the indie film scene. Wow, that's great. And, and, there, and everyone that you see coming out of the gate is really focused on the bigger films. Mm-hmm. But yet... It's the smaller filmmakers that are coming out with such original ideas, original camera angles, original concepts right. that you're not seeing today. You're, you're, you're not seeing it, and if you're not seeing it, you're really missing out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned film school. Can we, can we touch on that a little bit? Give us a little background sure. of, of uh, how you first got interested in, in film and filmmaking? Well, I, I started to discover acting uh, because I was always um, playing hooky on Fridays. Every Friday, I would come up with a new illness in grade three. And my principal, I didn't realize, was watching the entire time. And so when my parents came in for a parent-teacher interview, he said, your son is an actor. Um, oh. He's very good at getting out of class. And he's very good with coming up with weird illnesses. Um, that nobody on earth has ever heard of. Um, so you should send him to acting school. And it was in grade three that I, I discovered what, what acting was all about. But later on, when I became 12 or 13, I remember Entertainment Tonight ran a story about um, how a lot of waiters are actors in Los Angeles. 
Mm-hmm. And I freaked out at that. And I thought, I can't do that. I can't, uh, I can't allow um, uh, the world to dictate my fate like that. So I need right. to go and do something else. So I started to volunteer for the Toronto Film Festival at the age of 14. And uh, I did that for two summers. Um, my father was really upset because all my friends had, had jobs at McDonald's and places like that and were actually making money. Mm-hmm. And here I am spending money the entire summer running back and forth to the Toronto Film Festival. But I was introduced to Norman Jewison and, and uh, Terry Semmel and uh, Jodie Foster, Sean Penn. Sean wow. Penn was really good to me, actually. He spent a lot of time. He had just directed his movie, The Indian Runner. And he was in the press for, you know, beating up cameramen and stuff. So I was really intimidated meeting him. But he was so gentle and so nice and told me what it's going to take to become a, a director. Wow. And, and then this I is finally, at 14? Yeah, You're at 14 years at old 14, hanging yeah. out with... Yeah. Wow. Jodie Foster and Sean Penn. Unbelievable. Go figure. Huh. And... Uh, and then um, I got a job working for CBC. Uh, they have a, a C, it's sort of like a BBC um, a wing called uh, CBC News World. Mm-hmm. And I started, I got a job producing. So I was, uh, I was 16 at the time. And wow. that led to uh, me kind of understanding more about the world, understanding more about how to put a, a story together. I had a team that was extremely sophisticated that really slowed down for me and taught me a lot on the job. And then I got into film school. And in film school, I really felt out of place because when, when, when I was looking at what others were doing, they were very good with their hands. They could edit. They could uh, um, direct properly. They could, they could shoot. I couldn't do any of this stuff. And I was really starting to feel like an outsider more and more. And um, uh, the end of the school semester, you have to make a film as your exam. So mm-hmm. they tell you what you need to do for that, for those who, who are not in film school. So, you know, you need to have these type of shots. You need to, you know, have this type of story. You need to put this type of scenario together. You have to have it at this type of uh, time length. So when, when I had to do that, my father said, well, I'm not paying for your film. I've paid for your college and I've, you know, taken care of it, but I'm not, you know, I don't have the money to pay for film stock and lighting and all this other stuff. So Who does, I called, really? I mean... Well, that's <laughs> just it. And I asked around what others were doing, and they were putting it all on their credit card. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I don't, I don't like that idea either. So I called all the wealthiest people in Canada. Uh, there were 68 published in a list that came out of the highest paid executives. Hmm. And I called them all every night. And uh, three of them got back to me. And one owned uh, a large uh, newspaper, national newspaper, Conrad Black. Um, one had the studio, Alliance Atlantis, Seton McLean. Wow. And one owned a mining company named John Smith from Placer Dome, Canada. And, uh, you know, two of them sent me checks. So I cashed the checks. And then when I went in to see Seton McLean, his assistant took me to a refrigerator. And she opened the door and she said, all the film is yours. Wow. Here's the lab that you're going to send to. Here's your editor. He was the editor of Highlander, Brett Sullivan. And, uh, and here's uh, your equipment. So go. Wow. You know, that makes me wonder, why aren't they teaching that in film school? What, you know, what it's, you really just did. It's, it's really important to do. And, 
And I'll tell you, this all comes full circle because, uh, you know, I, I was being essentially my little short film in my first year of film school was being produced by a studio. And so I had senior level uh, students coming to volunteer on my film. Wow. And I had staff members interested in looking at what I was doing and interested in and what we were shooting and all that. And the one thing I realized at the end when it was all done, I am the worst director on earth. <laughs> I mean, it looked like a Michael Bay production because it was just so high budget with great equipment and everything. The story was completely useless. And so I said to my, my teacher, what do I do now? I, I, I thought this is what I wanted to do. Where do I go from here? And he said, what you're really good at is producing. Mm -hmm. You can bring money and you can bring people together. And that's what a producer does. And I said, wow, I like that then. And that's where I started to go. I started to focus on optioning children's books for a dollar and selling them with an asset attached, an actor, a director, back to the studios. Whoa. And so I started to kind of create a business for myself. Now, how'd you come up with that idea? I, I, I don't know how I came up with it. It was instinctive. I, I had learned from one of the producers I was working for when I was 16. And, and I said, I have this children's book I really like. What, it, what do I do with it? And he says, it's called an option. You put an option together. This is what it looks like. Here's a sample contract. And I just remembered that. And so when I was 21, I started to do that and, and put them together and, and sell them back. So I had Jason Priestley attached to a project when he was, you know, in 90210. And sure. um, I had, you know, Marina Sirtis from Star Trek uh, Next Generation attached to stuff. And so it just started to get a lot of publicity around it. And, uh, and this agency in Canada calls me up and says, come in and meet with us. So I met with them and they said, we want you to be a packaging agent take care of our actors, our writers, our directors, put them together. And I thought, well, this is a cinch. Sure. And I didn't want to stay in Canada. So I started to package projects and take them into the U.S. And I did Best Actress, which was the um, first movie that E-Network did. So that just led to other opportunities happening. And eventually... And this was still in your uh, 20s? Your early 20s? This was still, yeah. I was uh, 21. I left wow. agenting at, uh, on my 22nd birthday. You don't and, waste any uh, time, do you? Well, I tried not to because I just <laughs> felt there was too much I wanted to do. But, uh, right. but it's also, you know, for those listening who aren't getting to, to where they want and are feeling frustrated right now, that's part of the game. Right. You know, uh, uh, the, the, the industry is not based off of um, contacts, as they say, it's all who you know, not what you know. That's not true. And it's not based off of uh, complete luck. There is luck involved, mm -hmm. but it's based on persistence. It's the one who can hold on the longest that will right. actually get the benefits of it. You know, I tell the story of Ashton Kutcher. He's not, you know, your Oscar-winning actor by any means. But why did he get the parts he got? Because he moved to L.A., living out of his car, and decided that he was going to make it no matter what. Right. That's the difference between him and the Shakespearean actor you've never met. Right. I just love uh, the fact that at such a young age, uh, you're already going after it. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a long ride. And, um, and then eventually I got a script. It was a, a very um, dark script. It, it was orphaned. Um, nobody in L.A. wanted it. 
I called up all the studios and said, you know, here's this great script. No, we've already read it. We passed. We passed. And a friend of mine was a VP at uh, Paramount. And he said, listen, inside tip, when a project is dead, let it go until the next round of executives come. Because otherwise, you're just killing the project even further. And I thought, well, I can't do that. I need to get this made. Mm-hmm. So I found out where David Cronenberg lived. And I sat in front of his house on a Wednesday night for an hour and a half. And wow. Did you have in. binoculars and night vision? Well, I was literally right in front of his house. And he lived in an area that is million-dollar houses. And I'm in a little Toyota Corolla. And my friend, <laughs> I took my friend along who hated the idea. But we had pizza. We had Oreos. We're waiting and waiting and waiting. He said, you know, what if he doesn't come home? And I said, he has to come home. So we, it, took a, it took an hour and a half. But he did come home one night, and I jumped out of the car, and I gave him the script, and he said, uh, I said to him, well, Ray Fiennes is attached to it, and we'll only do it if you do it. And he kind of looked at the script, and he looked at me, and he said, okay, then get Ray Fiennes to write a letter, as if I'll mm. never see you again. A so I a challenge home. there. Exactly. I don't know why I said Ray Fiennes, by the way. I don't know, I don't know why that name popped in my head. But I did get home, and because he was in England, um, it was a time difference. So I called the agent there, and I said, David Cronenberg has sent me. You have exactly eight hours to read the script. I need a letter from Rave saying he'll do it, and Cronenberg will do it as well. Sure enough, in the fax machine, if you remember the days of faxes, Mm -hmm. uh, this letter came saying Ray Fiennes would, would uh, very much like to do this project with uh, Mr. Cronenberg. So I took the letter back to him, and he sort of looked at me and said, okay, uh, let me think about it. And then I get the call saying, I'm going to do it. And every single person who passed on it was calling me saying, hey, that project you showed me, can I, can I take another look at it? Can I right. uh, And uh, it got made. The movie was called Spider. Um, wow. It did very well at TIFF. It did very well at Con. And uh, it sort of launched me a little bit forward. That's fantastic. So how did you how did you make the transition from you know actually making films to creating indie view? Well, you know, now we're talking. I'm 23, 24 years old. Spider has come out. I'm uh, I'm not a nice person at this point. I'm very cocky. I'm very mm. arrogant. I would even say I'd go as far as saying I'm mean. Um, where I would do a deal where I would have everything and you would have nothing. And I, I was very enamored by Michael Ovitz. And I used mm-hmm. to study how he did business. And what you didn't hear about at the time was how many people hated him, despised him, and right. because they had been hurt by him. And um, I was just, you know, this, this guy was, had, had made the house of CAA and he changed the industry forever. And so I wanted to be like him. And uh, in doing that, I did create a lot of enemies, but more so, um, I was in the middle of a deal with Johnny Depp. He had seen Spider. He had his agent call me, and they talked about a a script that he wanted to do. Um, I said, great, you know, and and I looked at the project. Again, it was a very dark project, but it was in turnaround at the studio. And uh, it was going to be made for something like $10 million. I think, I think it was actually $6 million plus tax credits and a foreign country buy-in. So it would have been about, uh, about $10 million. Mm-hmm. And then he signed on with, uh, with, uh, to do this. 
Um, but I had negotiated that one of the writers that I manage would do the rewrite. And all of a sudden, his agent sends me an email saying, look below. And below, my client had gone around me to say, don't go through Sanjay. I don't want to pay commission. So I just I said, you know, I've spent my life trying to help you. I put everything I can into your career, and this is what you do to me. And so I told my father, and my father said, well, that's called karma. That's what happens when you're not a nice person. You have to sleep with one eye open all the time. So I said, okay, fair enough. I closed my laptop, and I was out of the business. And I I literally wanted nothing to do with, with the business anymore. And the next day, I meet this woman in a park. We start talking, and one thing leads to another. And she says, I want you to take my class. And I said, what class is it? And she said, what do you care? You're unemployed. (laughs) So I went to this class the next day, and it was a hypnotherapy class. And I was watching open-heart surgery without anesthetic or a dental surgery without anesthetic or people remembering things from their childhood that that they had blocked out. And I said, that's what I want to do. And so I became obsessed by days, nights, weekend courses, and uh, started to become uh, sort of a facilitator in addiction behavior. And so I literally was out of the business. I was having a good time. I was helping alcoholics and drug addicts uh, uh, change their lives. And and then um, I started publishing books on the subject of of changing your mind very quickly, rewiring your your brain to to accomplish whatever it is you wanted to. And um, I got a hold of a a DVD uh, copy of The Secret before it had come out, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and it was, uh, it was amazing. So Mm -hmm. I went and, and I pursued those people, um, and, and eventually signed most of them. And then our company just sort of blew up. We went into 17 countries and 12 languages. And then as time started to go, I started to see how the industry was changing. And I kept saying, but I'm not into it, so I don't care. But then right. I'd see something else happen and think, oh, I could have done that differently. But I don't care. I'm out of it. And then eventually I just saw this niche market where there was an indie view that was desperately needed because I was so sick and tired of Hollywood remakes. Mm-hmm. It's like with all the writers out there and all the directors out there, you can't come up with something original. Right. I and feel you on that so- one. What happened to my friend from film school that did that really great little short? And what happened to that guy that I saw at the uh, film festival who did that really great takeoff of Romeo and Juliet in Thailand? And where did they go? How do you even find them? Why don't I build something? Why don't I build something that can bring those types of films back where you can go and see them and talk about them? Because basically all you'll hear from me is about how great this movie was that I saw in 1996 at the Toronto Film Festival. And when you say, great, when can I see it? I don't know. I, I, I don't even know where the filmmaker would be. I'm sorry. Right. So I contacted my friend from high school who was uh, a very senior programmer and said, here's my idea. And he sort of said, well, do people really watch those kinds of movies? So I took him to the TIFF theater and we watched a documentary on rain. Yes, (laughs) R-A-I-N. And the theater was full. And he could not believe that we're watching a documentary on rain in a full theater. Right. He said, I'm in. 
and we started to pull a team together. And from there, we're now with 14 people. Um, IndieView has grown in one year 300%. And we now also participate by giving back to the industry where the highest viewed movie gets a $10,000 budget out of us to make another film. Wow. So I like that. You're, you're perpetuating the, the filmmaking process. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We, we really wanted to encourage those filmmakers uh, that, that, you know, have made something really great. We want to see what else is in their head. We want to, you know, kind of push the limits. I think it's fantastic. Well, I hope your listeners will actually go there and, and uh, give it a chance with their films. Yeah, for sure. And it's, uh, again, IndieView, I-N-D-I-E-V-U-E.com, or, uh, or the Facebook page is just IndieView, I-N-D-I-E-V-U-E, one word. And uh, you can see uh, what it takes to get that $10,000. Also, we pay very differently than, than YouTube or, uh, or Vimeo. So we will pay you $0.05 cents per click from the first click um, if it's exclusive. Right off the bat, huh? Right off the right off the bat. Wow. Or we'll pay you three cents per click if it's not exclusive from the mm. first click. Well, that's great. Um, so, other than uh, going to indieview.com and signing up, um, do you have any other advice for filmmakers out there that are are trying to get it going in the indie filmmaking world? You know, I think that this is an incredibly lucky time for them. As much as, as when I talk on panels, uh, I hear a lot of doom and gloom out of them, it's actually a great time. And I think you'll understand if we go back to the early 70s, we would be talking about a time when, you know, the studios were coming out with Paint Your Wagon, uh, with, with Clint Eastwood singing and dancing, and yet it was the Roger Corman school that was putting out cutting-edge stuff. Right. They didn't have a big budget, you know, he would give Martin Scorsese five grand, go start shooting, and he'd give, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan Demme five grand and say, go start shooting, and then they run out of money and they come back to him, he'd give him a little bit more. Um, but they were able to make great stuff because there were no rules. You know, they weren't under the, the star system, they weren't under the studio system. So right. they were able to really express themselves creatively with a small budget, which makes you actually uh, think even more so how to how to do this scene on a very small budget. And that makes you even more creative when you finally push yourself to that limit. So, you know, the Michael Bay's, it's great to have them because you can say, you know, I want to blow up New York City. Okay, sure, we'll make that happen. You know, the, the mm-hmm. money is no object. But when you want to do that scene and you only have $50,000, how do you do it? Well, it may not look like a Michael Bay scene, but it's going to look great because you've just pushed yourself past that limit. The other thing is, is that the distribution now, you don't need anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, you go to an indie view, let's say, you put your email address in, you're signed up. You, you, you give us the uh, place that we pay, uh, the, the email address that, get, that gets paid, and you upload your movie. And Unbelievable, we, isn't that? I mean, that's just mind-blowing to me. You, say that 20 years ago, people would look at you like you've lost your mind. Right, yeah. You know, I, I have to have Warner Brothers. I have to have, you know, Universal Studios. Well, no, you really don't. And in fact, if we go back to the 70s, it was the Roger Corman crowd that was beating the studios. 
the studios finally became smart and started to hire those directors to direct their movies. But until that point, they had forgotten or lost track of what the audience really wanted. Mm-hmm. And we're back, because history repeats itself, we're there now. And I think that you, you know, every filmmaker should take advantage of that opportunity, because it's not going to last very long. So when you're in this state, you have the ability to push yourself creatively, to push yourself uh, economically, and to come out with something that really reflects who you are. So that when the studios come around and when, you know, a financier comes around and they look at this, they say, wow, this is something I've never seen before. That's Mm -hmm. really interesting. Don't try to be Tarantino, you know, don't try to be all the others, be who you are and you're going to bring your own audience together. Well, um, I urge everybody out there to check out IndieView.com and uh, sign up. It, it, it sounds like an amazing uh, platform and opportunity. I mean, how often uh, do you get the chance to uh, win 10 grand towards your next filmmaking project? Exactly. Now, are exactly. you on Twitter as well? Yes, we are. IndieView is on Twitter. Once again, I'll say I-N-D-I-E-V-U-E. And uh, please uh, join us. Check us out. I think we're also on Instagram. Uh, we're on all of those. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, Sanjay. Well, thanks, man. This was a, a very insightful interview. Uh, do, you, do you have anything else you want to touch on? Well, to all those filmmakers out there, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. You know, it's not easy. And if it was, everybody would be doing it. So keep going one step at a time. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grip podcast. Feel free to head over to IndieFilmGrit.com. Check out the show notes. Follow us on Twitter, at IndieFilmGrit. And please, take a moment and subscribe to us on iTunes. It'll really help us get the word out. I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit?